This is Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from each coast, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Legal Talk Network. This is Coast to Coast, the top-rated legal radio show on the Internet. I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Today's topic is getting a lot of attention on college campuses across the country. We all know the blog is a powerful tool, and postings reach people around the world in seconds. Tech-savvy law professors have already joined the blogging craze, but the question has been raised, should those blogs be part of their academic pursuit? Some professors believe their blog postings are as important as published articles and should be considered in, uh, in weighing tenure and other professional merits. Just to give you an idea of how hot this topic is, uh, Harvard Law School's Berkman Center recently held a conference in, called Bloggership, How Blogs Are Transforming Legal Scholarship. Much of the debate at Harvard centered on the power and merit of the blog in academia. Well, Bob, let's start our discussion by introducing our guests. With us now is Professor Susan Crawford of the Cardozo Law School. Susan teaches cyber law and intellectual property law. Her focus is on Internet law and policy issues, including governance, privacy, intellectual property, advertising, and defamation. She also has her own self-titled blog. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm here at the corner of 12th Street and 5th Avenue in New York. And our next guest, uh, many of you know, is Professor Eugene Eugene Volok. Professor Volok teaches free speech law, criminal law, copyright, law of government and religion, and seminars on firearms regulation policy at UCLA Law School. Before coming to UCLA, he clerked for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and for Judge Alex Kaczynski in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Volok is founder and co-author of the Volok Conspiracy, a blog that... Uh, uh, is well known to just about everybody in the blogosphere and it gets uh, more than 20,000 unique visitors a day. Welcome to the show, Professor Volok. Uh, great pleasure to be on. And we also have with us Professor Miriam Cherry. Professor Cherry is currently a visiting professor at Hofstra and will be joining the faculty of the University of Pacific McGeorge School of Law uh, up in Northern California this summer. She's also a blogger on Contracts Prof, a member of the Blogs Network, or the Professor Blogs Network, and is a guest blogger, blogger at Concurring Opinions. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start out with a question about, just throw it out to the three of you. Um, do you believe that academic blogging is different from kind of basic blogging that you see lawyers doing? Yeah, this is Susan Crawford. Actually, no, no, I don't. I I see academic blogging as bringing a different flavor to what lawyers are doing. We get to step back a bit. We have the leisure of time, and we don't have the immediate demands of clients all the time. But we're trying to have a voice uh, that lawyers representing private clients often can't have. So we're like lawyers blogging. We just have a wider frame of reference, um, perhaps a little bit more time to think about it, and maybe slightly more thoughtful posts. But that's up to you guys to tell us. I was going to ask the question of the same question of Professor Volek, if whether academic blogging is different than basic blogging. Um, academic blogging uh, is different from basic blogging in the same sense that, uh, uh, say, uh, a newspaper op-eds written by academics may be different from a typical op-ed. It's very much the same genre. Uh, the two could be very similar, 
But at the same time, uh, it's a pretty good, uh, good bet that uh, an op-ed by an academic is more likely to use the academic's uh, 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 knowledge base to be written with a kind of care that academics are taught to exercise and that academics feel they need to exercise in order to maintain uh, their reputations. Uh, and uh, my hope is that people who uh, are looking around uh, at blogs or, for that matter, at op-eds and trying to figure out, is this something that's uh, trustworthy, Oh, would look at the credentials of the writer, and if they see it's an academic who specializes in the field or a practicing lawyer who specializes in the field, they will take it more seriously than if it's just some uh, interested layperson who may or may not have a really substantial knowledge base on the subject. Uh, so uh, from a broader perspective, I think academic blogging is a real asset to the, to the blogosphere, uh, and there's a lot more of it, uh, as uh, best I can tell them, there is say, academic op-ed writing. Uh, in newspapers, I think it is one of the things that makes blogs a uh, an important destination for people who are interested in, in certain subjects, uh, uh, that they can go to, say, uh, com or com and see Oren Kerr, who is one of the leading uh, um, scholars on search and seizure law, opining on search and seizure uh, and on electronic searches and seizures, which he's also one of the leading scholars on, uh, and uh, would would. I think a lot of readers are very pleased that they can do that now, that they can actually get the information straight from the expert's mouth rather than have it be filtered through often generalist uh, reporters who may have made important details. Well, I wonder that. I wonder if I could ask uh, Miriam Cherry, that, I don't know if she saw uh, uh, Dahlia Lithwick had an essay that's published on Law.com today. It's really kind of a pay-in to law professor bloggers. And uh, one of the comments she makes is that in that is that it says, law professors who can be exceedingly cautious in print sometimes become slightly drunk on the Internet's thin air, uh, suggesting that they become more creative and more open on the Internet. So how is how is blogging uh, for law professors different than other kinds of writing, whether op-eds, as Eugene mentioned, or more traditional law reviews? Well, I think it's actually a great way to be able to talk about a lot of your ideas that might not merit an 80-page article with copious footnotes, maybe two or three hundred footnotes. So it's a really great way, I think, to explore different ideas, but maybe in a shorter format. And so I think in that way, it can really add to a lot of the scholarship that's, that's already out there. And you can also respond a lot more quickly, obviously, to events that are occurring, as opposed to the waiting time that you have to uh, go through between the process of submitting an article for publication, getting it edited, and, uh, and, and then having to wait a certain amount of time for it to go to publication and posting on SSRN. So I, I think the, the format, uh, though, I think adds. You get some uh, ability to, to comment fairly quickly. Um, and the thing is that, a, a, I guess, a blog post is, is not the same as a law review article in that sense because it, it hasn't gone through careful uh, fact-checking. It hasn't, it hasn't gone through some of those things. But on the other hand, it has so many benefits uh, sort of on, on the opposite side um, but it's it's a little bit different in that sense. Is it scholarship? Is there any, is there any doubt in your mind that this is a form of legal scholarship? There's doubt in my mind about it. Um, scholarship uh, uh, it has, I think, two traits. Um, one is that scholarship is supposed to be original. It's supposed to add new th- uh, new information to the store of knowledge about a field, whether it be chemistry or literature or law. Uh, some op-eds contain original scholarship, uh, but uh, most, and usually they're ones who are, that are kind of, in a sense, the first cut of articles the person's working on, or sometimes uh, uh, brief items about uh, uh, um, about certain subjects the person's interested in, but they don't merit a full article. 
But most op-ed, excuse me, most blog posts, like most op-eds, uh, are, are not original. Uh, they are attempts to popularize what is often pretty much well understood um, uh, 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 knowledge in the, in the field, uh, or to apply this knowledge to a new event, to, 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 to new circumstances, but in a way that really doesn't uh, betray much originality in a scholarly sense. That's not to knock it. It can be tremendously useful to readers, but it's not scholarship in that it's not something that adds to the store of professional knowledge. The other thing about scholarship is it tends to be uh, pretty detailed in its arguments and pretty attentive to counterarguments, and that's one reason it has to be relatively long. Maybe 100 pages is too long, although unfortunately some articles, including some of my own, seem to have had to be that long. But even a 10-page article can go through things in pretty careful detail. It'll lay out a pretty solid, syllogistic argument. A blog post, usually just because of the limitations uh, uh, of the reader's attention span, um, uh, is not likely to have that much detail. So in that respect, it's also different from scholarship. So it's not scholarship by and large, it's not bad. It's good. It's valuable. There's a lot more that's valuable in what scholars do than scholarship. I'm hoping this conversation between us uh, is valuable to us and to the listeners, but it's not scholarship. Uh, so it's important to say that, that, it, that it is meritorious, and it's an important part of what often people will think of as the professor's teaching or public service function, but it's generally not scholarship. Professor Crawford, do you think that... Uh Law schools should be considering blog postings or perhaps the more academic slant of a blog posting as uh, for tenure and for other merit-based uh, evaluations? I don't actually seek to require my own faculty who sometimes can't find a computer uh, to consider my blog posts. I view this as my public life, um, my role as an advocate often. I'm on the board of ICANN, uh, the domain name regulator, and I use the blog to communicate with people about what's going on with Internet governance issues. I see it as an extension of my personality into the world uh, that isn't, as Eugene says, necessarily scholarship. I think the law school faculty has every right to consider my articles when they consider me for tenure, and they will stand on their own two feet. Um, but the blog is important to me as a person uh, to have a voice, to be part of emerging policy questions, to keep in touch with the world in a way that often scholarship doesn't allow you to do. So as Jean says, I think this is part of our service public function to have a blog, an important role for a law professors who all too often toil in obscurity, cut off from the profession and from having any real impact on political matters. Law professors are becoming rock stars these days. They're no longer toiling in obscurity. That's right. I think the rise of the blog has had an awful lot to do with that. Is there a flip side to that? Are, are you looking over your shoulder at all as you're blogging? Are you concerned about the uh, implications of what you're writing about uh, within the academic environment in which you work uh, or uh, among your colleagues? I'm lucky to be a second career law professor. I was a partner at a large Washington law firm before this. So life is too short to look over my shoulder and worry about what might happen to me in this profession. This is part of my life. Um, it's important to me. I don't advertise my blog at conferences. I guess that's where I draw the line. When I'm there to present a paper, I'm there to talk about the paper and not to point people to my blog posts. Which raises an interesting question of how blogging is having an effect on the academic world of law reviews. Let me uh, mention a couple of things, one related to that question, one related to the previous one. Um, I, I think that uh, people do look over their shoulders some when they're blogging. 
Uh, and some of that is actually quite healthy. One thing that we realize is we have reputations as scholars to maintain, and that means we need to be extra cautious. Uh, and if uh, cautious not about incendiary ideas, but cautious about arguments that aren't well worked out. So when we post something, we might think more than somebody who doesn't have that kind of reputation to maintain. Is this really right? Is there an important argument that uh, uh, that I've uh, that I've omitted, or an important counter argument I really need to deal with in this post? Am I speaking accurately enough? Should I make the uh, the statements more precise. I think anybody who either has a pre-existing reputation as a scholar or who has already developed reputation as a blogger does look over the shoulder for people who are out there trying to catch you in an error. A second way that I think that is uh, that may be good, maybe bad, um, uh, is that I think a lot of people have found that certain kinds of topics are so incendiary that not that they don't want to deal with them, but that they realize that if they deal with them, they're going to have to spend weeks uh, or the very least days dealing with some of the blowback, people posting responses that you feel obligated to further respond to people demanding clarifications, and then you have to explain why it is they misunderstood you and such. So unfortunately, sometimes even somebody who is generally courageous in the sense that, that he's not afraid of raising certain topics, nonetheless may be reluctant to raise them just because he may, not, he may feel, I don't have the time to deal with the blowback. Um, even though I'd be willing to if I had the time. The other thing is that indeed some people I think sometimes uh, are uh, careful because certain kinds of ideas may look bad if they're up for various kinds of governmental positions or for tenure or whatever else. I think that's too bad. I think it's our job as scholars to to, to say what we think is right regardless uh, uh, of the consequences, but I think it is inevitable and it's just uh, it's uh, understandable given human nature. As to how this changes the law review world, hard to tell, but I do think a lot of bloggers realize that law review editors read blogs. So many people, I think, have the hope, and I think sometimes it may be, in fact, a realized hope, uh, that if they develop a popular blog that has a, uh, uh, that has a reputation and a positive reputation, then what will happen is law review editors, uh, when they see an article with the, a familiar professor's name, they'll say, oh, that's interesting. They'll still evaluate it and still try to evaluate it objectively, but the hope is they're going to pay more attention to it because it comes from someone who now has this extra public reputation and may already be known and liked by the editors. Well, of course, an important... Dis- I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I guess it's also possible that you, you might talk about some of the ideas that would be in the article on the blog as you're sort of working through some of the ideas, which I think is valuable because that way you can get comments... Um, and then that might, might draw attention to your work. So uh, if law review editors are looking at, at the blog and see some of the ideas and think, wow, that looks really interesting, I'd like to see more, then potentially when the, when the final article comes in, in front of them, not only might they recognize uh, your name, possibly, but also potentially some of the ideas. Well, a key distinction between a, a, law, a published law review article and a, a published blog posting is that one is vetted by a, an editor or a group of editors, and, and one is not. What, what you seem to be suggesting is, to some extent, the, the process of blogging is a form of, of vetting, what you're saying. Well, in, in some sense, I suppose, vetting. Um, if there, there are several sort of ideas that I've thrown out there into the world that maybe are in a sort of a very vague or nascent stage, but I've just wanted to see what people thought, and I think that, that's sometimes a good, a, a good method of, of doing that. Maybe, maybe I don't get any responses, or maybe I get ten responses, and that might help me think about what, what to do. You know, do, I, do I move forward with the project? Do I develop an idea further? Uh, it, 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 it may go somewhere. It may not go somewhere. 
What's your opinion about the kind of emerging aspect of court cases citing to uh, bloggers and blog, some law professors and some lawyers? I noticed recently that the Apple versus O'Grady case had 11 citations to Wikipedia, although not any blogs, but it was interesting to see such a heavy reliance on an online, uh, essentially vetted, I guess, to some degree, encyclopedia. It's interesting and, in my view, unpleasant to see that. Uh, I think Wikipedia is really good for various reasons, for, for, for various purposes, but when law is being made, it seems to me that judges ought to rely on something that is less fluid, less subject to uh, uh, partisan hijacking than Wikipedia has at times been. Um, uh, I think it's just a matter of judges maintaining standards of evidence, not even necessarily in in the uh, uh, courtroom uh, uh, as such, but in the in the um, uh, uh, lawmaking process uh, uh, that uh, uh, that uh, lead them to rely on things that uh, have been more carefully vetted than Wikipedia entries at times have been. I think there are pluses to the way Wikipedia operates. By the way, for listeners who aren't aware of it, Wikipedia is a uh, jointly created encyclopedia that not only has pe- lay people, I'll be quite interested enough and knowledgeable lay people, writing entries on certain subjects, but also makes it possible for anybody to modify any entry anytime they want to. Uh, and in, in many situations, that actually leads to, to more accurate results than supposedly professional work might, uh, uh, might produce, because it, there are a lot of people who are all trying to get things right, and with, uh, with more eyes uh, uh, on it, uh, more errors are, are smoked out. But sometimes there's somebody who has a partisan or ideological agenda uh, who is not interested in getting it right, or whose view of right is a very idiosyncratic view, and as a result, an entry may end up being wildly wrong on certain topics. Or sometimes the layperson who wrote it is interested but makes an important mistake. Um, and, uh, and as a result, uh, the person who relies on it makes the same mistake. It's one thing if you just look it up for cocktail party chatter or as the start of your research. It's another thing when you're actually relying on it in a published court opinion. Absolutely. And I also think you have to consider the source, not just of anything on the Internet, but uh, you know, I, t- I tell my students all the time, you know, think about who wrote this and where, this, where the source might be coming from and the appropriate authority to give it. And I think maybe as a starting point for research, it makes a lot more sense. Well, at this point in time, we are going to take a break, a short break, and we, when, when we come back, we will discuss what the future holds for Law Professor's blog. Coast to Coast comes back in just 60 seconds. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. (laughs) 
A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Our guests today are Professor Susan Crawford of the Cardoza Law School, Professor Eugene Volokh, Professor at UCLA Law School and founder of the blog The Volokh Conspiracy, and Professor Miriam Cherry, visiting professor at Hostra and blogger for Contracts Prof and Concurring Opinions. Welcome back. Before we get started with some final thoughts, uh, I wanted to toss out a little bit about what happened at the bloggers' conference at Harvard Law and see if we could get some reaction to uh, apparently what may have been a divided room on uh, the issue that we've just been talking about in terms of blogs and law review articles. I was in the audience. <laughs> oh, okay. It was a great conference. Was there a controversy between on this issue? I'm, I'm not entirely sure that there was that, there was that, that much controversy about it. I think more people were discussing some issues, I think, afterwards, perhaps, that sort of came up in the blogosphere after the conference was over. So I don't know that it was as much a – it was people blogging about blogging at the conference. <laughs> so it was, okay. it was a little bit recursive. I've been there and done that. Uh, I, I'm wondering – I know Susan Crawford writes a, a solo blog, and, and Miriam Cherry, you contribute to a couple blogs. Eugene writes a blog that – that is written by uh, other contributors as well. Is there an advantage to contributing to a group blog for, for a law professor over writing a solo blog? Is, is one uh, have any advantages over the other? Sure, there is a distinct advantage, and it's the very reason that I uh, uh, decided that, uh, uh, to uh, set up a group blog, uh, and that is uh, that uh, uh, in order for people to come and visit your blog and come back day in and day out, there has to be new content. And generally speaking, more new content is better. Uh, more new content means that people will know that if they visit your site every day, they're going to find interesting stuff to read. Uh, also, that means more links from other sites, and each link not just brings uh, a, a set of readers to that post, but uh, leads some readers to stick around and come back and visit uh, the blog later on. Uh, uh, now, the problem is, if you're just blogging yourself, you may be really enthusiastic, but at some point you'll get busy or you'll get tired, and then you'll realize, look, if I stop blogging for a couple of weeks, my readers are going to stop coming and not going to come back. So blogging will become a chore, which is not good for anyone. So if you can get good people who have a similar voice in some respects to you and who have interests that are similar enough but at the same time different enough they can provide actually a different set of content for readers. It could be a really good way of making sure that there are more readers to read your stuff as well as theirs. Also, I think for many people, it's just a lot of fun to be involved in a cooperative venture. These, a lot of my co-bloggers are good friends of mine, uh, and it's just great to be involved in a joint venture with them. Uh, well, at the same time, a venture that has very little internal friction and hassle, uh, unlike many other joint ventures would. 
Jean has lots of interesting points here, although I, you know, I have a solo blog, and I have to say that because of RSS readers, um, people who have subscribed to my blog will get it, even if I take a day off, they'll just be interested the next time something shows up. Um, but not all people And I it. feel myself to be part of a community of people that link to my blog, that I link to. So I've got that same kind of friendly relationship that Jean describes, but with the people that are also writing about the things I'm interested in. So it's the same relationship, just on a different level. Miriam, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think I, I uh, well, I, to some extent, it depends on whether you're, you're on a group blog, which is what I've done, or whether you're running a, a, a solo blog, I suppose, and, and what you think the, the benefits and, and uh, uh, costs are to you. But in my mind, I think sharing the, the, uh, the blog posting is actually a great idea and just enables you to enables the blog actually to cover uh, many more different areas than it would if it were just one person writing. Well, you're, kind of, you're kind of even a step further because your, your blog, at least one of the ones you contribute to, is part of a, a larger network of law professor blogs. So it, it brings in a, an even broader group and a broader community. Exactly. Uh, Paul Karen, who uh, started the, the Legal Blog Network, he's done a great job of bringing in different law professors to specialize in particular areas of law. So for those professors who are specializing in contracts, the Contracts Prof blog is a great place to go and get information on things you might want to teach your class, on recent cases, and there are blogs in any number of different areas that professors teach in. So it's a really good way, I think, to, to you know, at the same time specialize and at the same time be part of a broader network. The University of Illinois has begun to feature some of its law professor bloggers on its own website for its law school. Uh, do you think that that's going to have an effect on those law professors' blogs and their comments now that they're uh, actually representative of the university? Well, I would hope not. I've, uh, the University of Chicago has done something like that, and they've got a very lively blog going. Uh, so it's, I, I would hope that their voices would be just as free as they were if they weren't being sponsored by Illinois. After all, it's their it's their tone, it's their voice that's coming across, uh, and they presumably are vetting their own their own words carefully enough so as not to embarrass their institution. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, uh, I think uh, institutions certainly see professors as speaking for themselves and not for the institution, including a conference as the institution puts on. I think most people who are at all familiar with the academy realize that that that's so. Uh, I do think that on an institutional blog, people are probably a little bit more cautious, sometimes in good ways, uh, sometimes maybe not so good ways. The good way, for example, is I think that people would be more careful in not saying things that are rude uh, or in, uh, in vetting their posts to make sure that they're accurate, that they don't have to then put up an apology that will embarrass not just them but possibly their co-bloggers. The possible downside is if somebody at Illinois has a view that uh, uh, that uh, um, uh, they see, uh, they recognize their colleagues may find and, and readers may find uh, uh, unpleasant or politically incorrect, then in that case uh, they may be reluctant to air it because of a fear that it's going to cause friction in this medium. And that's not that good, actually. I think I think that people should be airing all sorts of views, even ones that uh, that others may strongly disagree with. And I, I think that one possible downside to it also might be that you, you, I don't know if you really would want the there's there's some danger I suppose of maybe perhaps having the blog turn into more of a PR or marketing type of uh, campaign I suppose for the school rather than maybe more of a vehicle for scholarly posts. Um, 
it, I don't know that that's necessarily happening yet or, or will happen, but I just mention it as one potential thing that could happen that I think wouldn't, wouldn't, be, as, wouldn't be as good. Well, we're nearing the end of our program, so we'd like to wrap up and get some final thoughts from each of you and then uh, also some contact information about you so that our listeners can find your blogs and uh, get a hold of you if they have further questions to explore about your comments today. So, Professor Volick, do you want to wrap up and uh, give your final thoughts about the topic we've been discussing? Yeah, everybody should read law professors' blogs because they're wonderful and we need more eyeballs. Professor Cherry? That's great. I second exactly what Eugene just said. Read away. Well, this is Susan Crawford, and law professors are people, too. So often they're writing about things that aren't just scholarly pursuits, and they're very interesting people, so it's worth reading. Um, my blog is scrawford.net. You can find my site, everything that, that direction, and I hope that you'll visit. I'm getting lots of hits, and I can always use more. Professor Cherry, how would our listeners get a hold of you and find your blog? The uh, best way to reach me is on email. My email address is on the various blogs that I'm on, and uh, you can find me by just Googling concurring opinions or contracts prof. And Professor Volok. Volok.com, V-O-L-O-K-H.com. Great. Well, we appreciate your participation today in our uh, show Coast to Coast, and that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, thanks very much for everything, and Bob, I will talk to you next week. All right, thanks to all our guests, and good talking to you as usual, Craig. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.